Welcome to Packet Pushes, your unabashedly nerdy networking and technology podcast. Now, towards the end of last year, and maybe you didn't notice it in the end of year Christmas freeze out as everything in IT comes to a grinding halt because of the holiday period, AT&T released a white paper outlining the company's vision for a disaggregated network operating system. Obviously, we're going to call that DNOS. Now, most of you know that a network operating system is the code or the operating system that runs on a networking device. But in most network devices, not only does it actually be the operating system, it also includes all the apps. So you have apps like BGP and OSPF and SNMP and Syslog and the command line interface and the API interfaces and all that sort of stuff. And compare that with your average white box server, you know, where you buy the server from company A, you buy an operating system from Microsoft or you use Linux, and then you install your applications on top of that. Why don't we do that in networking? So AT&T released this white paper DNOS aims are to be the network operating system that's separate from the underlying hardware and can run on multiple platforms, including Merchant Silicon. It'll have standardized APIs and other interfaces for clean separation of control plane and data plane, and it'll provide a platform to integrate with existing tools. Now, keep in mind, this is AT pushing it forward. So this is a really interesting idea. This sort of puts networking on the same standard of operational models as what we do with other technology, literally our servers. We have by the hardware, we put an operating system and then we run apps. Why does networking not do that? So today we're joined by John Metamana. He's an AT&T fellow and a vice president of the packet and optical networks at AT&T to learn more about why they did this. And I think the why is actually going to be just as interesting as the how. We're going to have a link in the show notes to the white paper so that you can read along and find out why they are. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Okay. Good morning, uh, Greg. I know it's a bit early, but so let's just get straight into it. What's why would AT&T, a company which is a customer of networking, not a maker of networking, suddenly put out a white paper and saying we need a universal NOS? What's the motivation here? Okay, I just wanted to say that when I joined AT&T, we made everything, including <laughs> software and hardware. That was a long time ago. Though. <laughs> so, so you're getting back to your roots. You're saying, yeah, <laughs> in a way, in a way, yes. Um, so as you as you said, NOS is the operating system that runs in networking devices. And it's multi-service, it's complex, it's used for internet, VPN, private, public, business, consumer, wired, wireless. It serves all kinds of diverse certain, you know, use cases. Mm-hmm. And they, they built, they, these routers are built and sold as monolithic elements. So mm. what does that mean? It kind of harkens back to how computing was in the days of the mainframes. You buy a box, it comes with everything you need. Mm. Hardware, software, all the utilities, tools, everything is included. You may be able to do a few things, you know, outside of the box, but the box is, yeah. you know, pretty rich. And you know, mainframe so, operations was about running batch scripts, and maybe you spend some time writing the batch scripts to do the operations, but really you were just fiddling it. You know, it's a bit like when you put a paint job on your car. You don't actually change anything about the car, but the color looks different. Exactly, exactly. So the computing world, of course, change. We, we don't ever recognize how it was back in those days, but networking world has struggled to, to make similar transitions. So why is this a problem? Um, first, cost. It's expensive to buy these monolithic you know, um, routers, which has everything you need in, in one box. Mm. Um, the pace of innovation is slow. The, the, the way these things are developed and built and sold really doesn't, it's not conducive to rapid innovation. It's a closed and proprietary platform, mm. and um, um, high complexity 
the the system is not decomposable. So which means you're relying on you know one organization, one development organization, one set of you know developers to really do everything for you and everybody else in the world. And sometimes you have to stand in line to get your, to your feature. Yeah, I mean, and that's because what makes sense for the vendor from a business point of view and a technology, they might be writing their code in, you know, some development environment. And for them right. to write a new feature might be incredibly difficult or they don't have the right people or maybe somebody left the business. And then all of a sudden the customer's left waiting patiently for a vendor to deliver a feature that, you know, in right. a pace that right. suits the vendor. Yeah, that's, that's right. So, so in summary, you know, high cost, long cycle times, and slow innovation. Those mm. are the three, you know, problems that we see that we would like to do something to change. And that's basically the reason why. So you see yourselves as providing leadership here and putting it out there. I mean, we looked at the previous success of AT&T with other initiatives here, like around the, the cord and the own app uh, stuff. And so you think that you're in a position to create leadership and get people to join? That's right. So um, so what, what we are proposing, as you summarized when you started, is we want to create a modular architecture. So if you you know if you look at you know these what I refer to as the monolithic routers, um, you know obviously you know these are OVM controlled ecosystems. Hmm. But even even if you look a little bit deeper into it, most of them evolved over the last couple of decades or longer, and they, they really don't have a modular architecture. You know, like you mentioned data plane and control plane and management plane and all of that. Hmm. Easy easy to make you know pictures and view graphs out of them. But yep. if you look underneath it, it's it's a very entangled kind of an architecture. So that also is something that needs to change. Um, and so, so we want to disaggregate the hardware from the software. Yep. We want we want to disaggregate the software itself into subsystems mm-hmm. that can that can that have a common data model and APIs so they can work with each other. And that makes it conducive to have an open ecosystem so we can now have application developers come and you know write specialized applications, and that can plug into the base operating system. Yeah, kind of create a Linux of networking. Well, we've seen a couple of steps in this direction. I mean, if you look at what Arista has done with their EOS operating system, they took a version of Linux and used that as the basis for their operating system. In the sense that all of their basic operating system is just a Linux code, and then they've optimized it. And I'm just looking at that and going, like, why did they optimize it? Why didn't they just keep the Linux standardized so that anybody could do anything to it? Is it really necessary to do extensive customization for networking? Or is it just a sort of one of those things that networking vendors do so that they can cover themselves in a cloak of, of shadows to say, you know, we did special, ju- you know, sprinkled special juju and magic sauce on top of this? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So so Linux, you know, if you, if you just take any distribution, it has fair amount of networking capability, you know, in, in the kernel, but it doesn't have everything you need. So you will need to add some customization for networking. Um, so so that, that needs to be done very carefully because you don't want to go go and change Linux itself in such a way that, you know, you, you want to ride the Linux uh, curve as, as it evolves. Yeah. But some amount of customization will have to be incorporated. So that's that's why I call it Linux of networking. You know, it, it it will have some customization for networking related. Yeah, but according to the white paper, uh, as I recall from reading it, DNOS is going to assume essentially it's going to be derived from a base Linux OS. Is that that the plan going forward? That's right. That is exactly right. So uh, AT&T, you know, we last year we bought Wyatta operating system mm-hmm. from Brocade. Yeah, from Brocade, we, yeah. Right. So we we now own Wyatta, and Wyatta was 
one of the OSs, you mentioned EOS, but Wire probably predates EOS. Yep. It was also written as, you know, it was Linux. They took Linux and added some networking customizations. When we looked at it, and we actually used it for a couple of applications in the early days of virtualization, we really liked it. That's what. That's really one of the reasons why we we bought it. Yeah. So that is that going to be a foundation? Are you then going to put the Viata code back out there and say this is a starting point for DDoS? Like when I say starting point, I mean it was a substantial starting point. Or are you going to keep that in house and say this is a tool that we're using? Yeah. So so it's it's something that we're considering. Greg. So mm. um, so we so clearly step number one is we need to get enough interested parties to come together. So we're just starting those conversations. You know, we're talking to a few different players, both on the service provider side as well as application developer side, hardware, silicon vendors. So we're trying to bring them together, have a conversation. We don't want this to be like AT&T is going to do this or control this, mm. but clearly we have something to bring to the table you know, and and parts of you know the, the base OS parts of Viera could be an option that that we can consider, but we mm. we're in very early stages of you know making those kinds of decisions. So it's possible. I mean, that that seems to me like a, a, a viable way for the Viata acquisition to survive and to to continue forward. It's not like sometimes what we've seen is that uh, you know these these products just disappear from from view. They're often acquired, but it, that could form a basis for for DNOS to progress. That could. So, like yeah. I said, we are we are thinking through all of that. Obviously, there are business issues to be considered. You know, yeah. we, we bought it for set of multiple different reasons, and mm. and this is an idea that we have, you know think about. But regardless, there could be somebody else out there who mm. may have a, a Linux based networking operating system. So, so we just need to let people come together and and people pick the best. You know, and yeah. we had it could be an option. Yeah, I think so. So what is the sort of governance or structural model then for this initiative? Is is sort of AT&T in charge right now? Or are you going to, there's a lot of use of the word open in the white paper. Are we talking about right. open source or what? what is the, how, what kind of structure are you setting up to attract people and, and get people on board to move it forward? So I think both open and open source would apply to this. So what we're envisioning is a base operating system with shared data, you know, things like Rib, you know, those who are networking would know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that will become part of a core, yeah. which, which we believe should be open source. Well, I don't, there's no reason for these things to be different. I think everybody, the, 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 a lot of what networking does is just the same, regardless of who and where you are. Right, right. It's, it, I've never really understood why we have this, um, you know, why every vendor has to reinvent the wheel, you know. And at least if they would reinvent the wheel within roughly, if it, if it was circular and, you know, all around about the same size, then we could all actually use the same <laughs> wheels. It doesn't seem right. to me that there's great value in, you know, Cisco's got, what, 15 different operating systems that it uses across its network devices, and yet they all do exactly the same thing, you know, route packets. Right. And in some cases, they don't all do the same thing, yeah. so you want yeah. VX line feature in this OS, but that's not only available in that OS. <laughs> so. Yeah. 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 They all seem to have the same bugs, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, yeah. so, so going back to that question on open and open source, so, yeah. so there's the, the core part, which we believe needs to be open source. But then the applications, that's really, mm. look, you know, nobody's going to make money by selling a base OS. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, that's going to be free. You know, Linux is free. So, But applications is where the value is. Mm. So the routing protocols the management plane protocols, management services, 
chassis management, all, all these different things that you need to add on top of the base of us. That's really what. Okay, so let's jump across. Let's just talk briefly about the architecture because the white paper talks extensively about the actual sort of software architecture that you see it happening. There's a couple of pieces in there that I think are really interesting. First of all, you fairly clearly design define things like um, there's forwarding and hardware abstraction. So where the software talks to the hardware, you think that there should be a series of quite easily definable abstraction layers. So the NOS could talk to an ASIC or it could talk to an FPGA or it could talk to just an x86 and and route packets in, you know, traditional just software only way. And then the middle part of it is that there's shared infrastructure and data. So, and I think what you're saying there is that every networking device basically does the same thing. Everybody's got an SNMP agent. Everybody needs a syslog, you know, at the simplest form. Everybody needs a Yang interface, API call. Maybe the models are different, but everybody needs a Yang code. You know, to deliver Yang. Is that what we're talking about? And, you know, obviously fibs and and ribs and, TK and and routing tables and those sort of data structures all need to be there as well. Right. That, that is, that's, that's exactly right. And uh, so so at the top side, you know, you have the applications, as we talked about earlier, and then you have the, the forwarding abstraction. Um, so, so that's another area where today, you know, if you look at every OEM, anybody who builds a device, you know, they, they'll work with their own ASIC, or a merchant ASIC yep. and use SDKs and build, you know, every every OEM has their their own, you know, uh, hardware abstraction layer. Mm. And um, and if you want to know, we have a new ASIC, you know, that becomes a long cycle time event. <laughs> so, yeah. what, so with P4 and, you know, Microsoft SAI and all of that, that's starting to change. And we want to take advantage of that in this mm. DNOS um, structure. So what we are envisioning is a forwarding abstraction layer. So think of it as like a, an upper layer of the abstraction mm. that can work with silicon or software forwarding plane. Yeah, and that silicon could be a Broadcom or a Marvel Fulcrum, or it could be a Barefoot Tofino. It could be an Innovium. It doesn't really matter because that's up to those manufacturers. In the same way that Intel x86 or ARM CPUs or Marvel you know, or, or AMD, AMD CPUs yeah. are all and and increasingly those CPUs were once all identical and now they're all got different features and functions because the 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 point is is that the CPUs can iterate at a at a time cycle that suits them. It's, building silicon takes five to ten years. You know, a, a new design sits in a in a product pipeline, and yet we're stuck with this. When the silicon arrives, then the vendor writes an operating system for it, and then it puts apps on the top. And lo and behold, twelve years later, you get a new switch switch chassis, and nobody needs chassis. That's right. So um, you're talking about abstraction layers um, then to be able to get away from this dependency on silicon or, you know, that the operating system is tied to a particular box. Right. I noticed that you're talking about P4 language as a universal API for packet munching. Is that the way forward, do you think? Is everything going to be about – so internally I could write a an app that does something to the packets using the P4 language. Are there others? Like I know there's Sonic uh, SAI, but SAI is really a silicon abstraction, I thought. Right, that, that's right, that's right. So this is, I think P4 is, looks very interesting. Uh, it, you know, right now it's probably doesn't like Broadcom doesn't support it yet. So some things need to happen before it's probably become like a P4 plus possibly, you know, because it needs to support software and hardware forwarding plane. Yeah. So the basic idea is the right, that's the right direction. Um, it, it probably needs to evolve a little bit more from where it is um, and, and get more acceptance. Yeah. I can see that because I think when P4 was put out there, when um, the people at Barefoot came up with the initial specification, I don't, I have the sense that they didn't really want to make it like to take over the world. It was meant to be like, here's an idea, 
let's right. see if anybody rallies around it. They didn't, right. you know, try and turn it into Microsoft Word. It was more like a, night, a Microsoft Notepad type of thing. I think you're right. I think you're right. And yeah. The, the concept is definitely what we want to to um, enable in the announcement. And AT&T has already done some trials. They, they put out a press release last year about working with P4 and some white box switches, actually moving traffic from one place to another. That's right. We have, we have participated in P4 conferences for the last three years. And every time we did you know, some kind of a POC, and we'll probably do the same this year. So it sounds like the pieces that are coming together then for DNOS, you want to start with a base Linux OS for the network operating system, P4 is some kind of abstraction language to talk with network devices, and then provide APIs or some layer of abstraction above that for folks to write applications and take advantage of this open network operating system? That's right. That's right. So the, the application part is where, like I said, that's where the value comes. So we need to attract companies mm. who write control plane applications, management applications, um, and, you know, some of those companies, they're specialized organizations. Mm-hmm. DNOS can open up a whole new ecosystem for them to play into, potentially make it more valuable for those kinds of companies. Go write BTP stack and then yeah. stack and all that. I'm more excited about the idea of startups that just produce routing protocols or Yang interfaces that are more, that have some unique feature. Because Today, to be a networking company, you have to have a custom silicon, a custom operating system. You have to have custom apps that you hand wrote for that box. And so there's no innovation around, can we have new, like look at what Facebook's done with OpenR. They've been able to write, because they're on merchant silicon running a generic Linux that they built because they're big enough to write their own Linux network NOS, they're actually able to start looking at alternatives to BGP and OSPF to pass messages between the operating systems. And I think that to me is the most interesting part. Yeah, and, and another um, thing I want to say is, you know, today, you know, these protocols like BGP and, and uh, OSPF and all of that, they, they're like highly engineered state machine driven applications. Now, as the networking evolves, like SD-WAN is an example. Yeah. Uh, today, yes, you know, uh, there are separate companies who make SD-WAN software. Mm-hmm. You know, why could it just be an application module on a router platform? And the DNOS structure will enable that. Yeah, why is it not just a Microsoft Word running on an x86 server right. that has a generic right. operating system and, right. you know, four NICs in the back of it. And that would be right. enough for an SD-WAN box for people who wanted to run that. Exactly. And, yeah. and now routing is not only driven by, you know, BGP, next hop considerations, but also application-driven requirements can drive routing. Yeah. And we can combine all of that. Because yeah. a lot of the reason that we, only reason that we use BGP and OSPF is because of the, the historical CPU limitations. We didn't. There are other algorithms which we could use um, to do, you know, source and destination routing. But we need a lot more memory and a lot more CPU. Well, guess what's in your average x86? You know, thousand dollar x86 server is about fifty times the capacity of your average network router. Right. Right. So this is the reason why you know the the current closed ecosystem approach. I think it'll be just too slow to take advantage of. You know, these kinds of opportunities. So I'm curious, you mentioned closed ecosystem. We're also seeing a lot of effort going on in open ecosystems like OpenR, which is a Facebook project that Greg mentioned. There's free range routing from the Linux Foundation. There's right. Quagga, which is free range routing is a fork of Quagga. There are already projects out there. So how does AT&T plan to sort of entice a community and developers to come and contribute resources and time and effort and money to yet another open project? That's a great question. Um, so we are in dialogue with most of them. Most of the names you mentioned, we, we are talking to Linux Foundation. You know, they, they're interested in understanding this, pursuing this, maybe mm-hmm. helping us better. The OSOS effort, 
um, you know, Google and uh, ONF, OpenR. Another very interesting one is uh, FRR, freelance routing. Uh, mm-hmm. Because what FRR does is really focus on the application layer. And you, you could have an open source application layer, uh, you know, which is so, so if, you, if somebody wants to create a DNOS distribution, which is, you know, completely open source, you could do that. Now, the the OpenR and, you know, Sonic and, and some of the other ones today, they, they seem to be focused on the data center use case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we definitely, you know, need data center use case because, you know, service provider networks are evolving to become network clouds, which means there are some data centers if you go into a central office, but we have the global van, mm. you know, which is... You know, yeah, so, right. <laughs> so we, you have the van to think about, yeah. yeah. Right. So we need some functionality, which, you know, things like the distributed control plane and all of that, which, you know, some of the data center networks probably don't worry about. Yeah, well, I think the data center focus is because, uh, well, there's money, so that attracts attention. And also because the problem space is physically bound. Things that are inside the data center, there's often people, like literally there's humans there to help, you know, solve or pay, you know, smooth out the tough part, (laughs) you know, for the first phases when things aren't necessarily quite perfect. So I think that makes sense to prove it out in the data center instead of trying to prove it out in a WAN in, you know, Azerbaijan, you know, in a remote site where you can't, you know, you need proven technology there or stable technology in some places. Right. You know. So what? So what we are seeing is, uh, you know, so there are multiple efforts in the data center, you know, use case, but for the the global service provider WAN type use case, we're not aware of anything like what we're proposing. Mm-hmm. You know, there is FRR, which is you know for the application layer, which is I, I look at that as, you know, a very very interesting opportunity for the DNOS concept to to potentially really you know um, get integrated with something like an FRR. Um, so should we assume then the DNOS you know, sort of the, the use cases and the um, the bent of the project coming out of the gate will focus more on a global WAN? That that is our main focus. Mm-hmm. That's okay. our main focus. Now mm-hmm. so with the with the, so we are talking to you know um, OpenR and OSOS and and others uh, and Sonic too. And uh, if if there is a way we can do both, you know, let's say same operating system can be used for not. Uh, data center use case as well as for global WAN use case that that'll be the ultimate outcome. That's possible. Mm. You know, I don't see any any reason why that's not possible. Um, just coming back to some of the architecture pieces here, um, one of the things that you actually call for in the white paper is some defined um, data structures in the in the management plane and saying these data structures need to be universal. Now, I've spoken to different developers of network operating systems who have all got highly opinionated views on what the data structures inside operating systems should look like, uh, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, if you want to create a VPN service with vendor A and never want to create a VPN service using vendor B, yeah. the, the entire provisioning process has to be redesigned. Yep. Our you know, OSS development has to go through a, a completely new cycle. Mm. That's, that's how it works today. And um, I, if we can... So, like... Open config has, you know, started some really good work where, you know, um, if these things can be standardized, and Yang is of course, you know, become um, very popular, and mm. so um, so Yang Yang models and REST APIs. That's that's foundational to the NAS the DNAS concept. So so one advantage, if I could add, so one advantage of this kind of an open approach is once we define those data models, then every application can use it. Every application developer can use it. In the same way that every everybody uses a SQL 
for a, a, a fixed database. So you know, let's pretend that there's not really only SQL, but most databases are SQL driven. And at the end of the day, everybody found a way to make SQL work for them. Right. And, you right. know, there used to be like many different types of databases in history. And, but everybody realized that in the end of the day, SQL was probably good enough for the widest range of use cases. Right. I mean, data modeling was, you know, the, the networking, network engineers never really um, did data modeling until very recently. CLI driven, you know, and the underlying data model, nobody worried about until, until recently. Well, I think, I think vendors did worry about it. But, you know, as I've actually said, is agreeing on a common data model or a common data structure, you know, like what does a rib table look like? What does a fib look like in this operating system? I imagine that's going to be a, a fun discussion for whoever writes the code for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I just want to sort of project forward now a little bit into sometime into the future and DNOS is, you know, ready to go and we're talking about, it, let's assume that it gets the legs and that vendors get on board and, and there's an open source community built around it and starts contributing code. How do we start? Look, let's talk about the security features. So things like supply chain integrity. How do we know that somebody's not slipping code inside of this that's going to be, you know, stealing data or stealing in, you know, some sort of uh, uh, vulnerabilities, malware type thing? And how do we do vulnerability testing and security? So a lot of open source projects only get tested after the fact, not during the fact. How do we solve those two problems? As as the, yeah, and the, I'd note that they're universal to open source, but for network operating systems, they're going to be big ones. Yeah. So so let me let me start with you know how I'm envisioning the distribution model mm. working. So there has to be at least one you know kind of free and open DNAS distribution, right? So mm. like I said, if, you know if we can if we can get FRR team to take interest in this, that may be a basis for an example of a free and open you know full stack. Mm. Now, somebody like a service provider could decide to take that. Somebody, a service provider with, a, let's say, technical capability and you know engineering skills could oh. take that and adapt it. So obviously, then in that model, they will be assuming the risk of you know security and and vulnerability management and reliability and all of that. Now, another distribution model is, and, and these are not mutually exclusive, which is we could have an integrator could take DNOS and work with application developers. Yeah. Who have built, you know, compatible applications, hmm. and and create a distribution. So there's a or, Red Hat DNOS. That's you right. Know, the Red Hat DNOS. Companies come right. up and build commercial support models and value-added models around. There's a right. free version; anybody can go and get it. But then there's other versions, a bit like what Brocade was doing with Open Daylight. That's right. That's right. So I can even envision an OEM, um, because you know today, you know OEMs are, you know, they have their own ecosystems. You know, this. Uh, you know, there, there may be some considerations that they have to probably think through, but I can I can see them um, becoming a distributor mm. for for DNOS because what OEMs bring to the table is they have they have these applications, mm-hmm. and if if they're willing to adopt that to DNOS, they could create a DNOS distribution, and that you know that that, that that's also a model. Now this is a little bit early in the game. We you know these are all ideas that we are talking about. Uh, hasn't advanced far enough to know which which model is viable commercially. Or. Yeah, but we have seen um, efforts like this, like a Dell will sell you a switch with Dell Zone network operating system on it, or they'll sell you a bare metal switch, or they'll sell you a switch with Cumulus already loaded or a big switch already loaded. So yeah, you're right that there are models out there that DNOS could borrow from. Right. Hmm. Now, connecting this back to the security question, 
so, so you know, to assure the integrity of a full stack distribution, you know, is, is what I was alluding to. You know, depends upon the distribution, you know, model. But one one benefit of the DNAS approach, the, the disaggregation approach, is we can add security modules to this OS. So I should have mentioned this earlier. Hmm. The, the DNAS structure would allow one of the applications could be a firewall application mm-hmm. or other kinds of security applications. Yeah. So we we envision the uh, VNFs, you know, virtual network functions to be mainstream applications that can be integrated at DNAS. Right. So there's no reason that this couldn't form the basis of security appliances equally. And That's that right. over time, enough companies were to adopt it, then that security would, you know, they would, as part of their validation and their value prop, they would start to add that, literally, you know, it would become that. Right. Yeah. So just like earlier we said, you know, SD1 could be just a feature of DNAS. Hmm. You know, depending upon what type of security, that could be a feature of DNAS. Hmm. So it's foundational, it's built in, it's not something, you know, we If enough security or, mentors pick up on the technology, then they'll start looking for the security vulnerabilities and find them and then iterate over the code base. That's a good point. In the same way that Linux got secure once it started to be used in high security applications. That's a great point. Um, and what about operations? So if I, if I, let's say if I'm like a, a, a typical enterprise, maybe I'm working for an enterprise and, you know, with the best will in the world, a lot of enterprises don't actually have the most highly trained, most expert software developers on staff, especially not necessarily ones who are, you know, use network operating systems. Um, If they were to start using this product, I guess, you know, what about support? Would this this be usable by people who rely on resellers and vendors to give them, you know, to, 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 to... add skills and design and capability? And will it have the reliability and the stability that they, well, I I, th- I would make the point that most vendor code today is of questionable reliability and stability. And maybe, but, you know, how could we assure them that something like DNOS would be as good as, if not better than? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good question. We're thinking quite a bit through it. So the one aspect of DNOS that we didn't really touch on is it needs a hardware to run on. And, uh, you know, the ODM ecosystem looks a little robust. number of ODMs are taking a lot of interest in working with us. They, they love this idea because they said they get, that's another distribution, you know, right. channel for them. Okay. Um, so now yeah. the question is, you know, you have a ODM hardware um, and you have a DNAS distribution, depending mm. upon mm. what model. Now, so you're saying, what you're saying there is that there's new, new opportunities for people to enter this market. So exactly. We don't right. see a lot of new networking companies entering the networking market. The market is owned by Cisco and Juniper and Extreme pretty much these days. Nobody else wants to enter the market because why bother? You know, the cost of developing an iOS and apps is too high. Right. That's right. So you could you could have a a, a new type of integrator who is, you know, working with ODMs, working with a DNS distributor, assembling a system and provide the you know operational support. Needed. Mm it to work. Now, we haven't thought about the enterprise market for this yet. Yeah. That's you know interesting idea that, you know, you kind of, right now, our focus is... Well, there's definitely a market for it. Like, if you're building a, an enterprise data center, you probably only need six switches max for an average, yeah. you know, for the for 80% of the enterprise IT market only needs six switches to, you know, and if they were 100 gig ports, you could easily support roughly a thousand physical servers, right? right. Um, and most of those, the, the provisioning of those six switches is all going to be done in the overlay. So really, we don't need a lot of the rubbish features that we have in these switches. You know, there's a vision where you could say the future of enterprise IT is in overlay networking from host to host. 
So what NSX is doing with VMware or what Contrail does with its, you know, in the virtual switch on the x86, it's encapsulated, whether it's MPLS tagging or VXLAN or NVGRE or what, you know, Geneva, whichever, it just gets encapsulated and it flows over some layer three. So I don't need a world-class operating system because it's actually not doing anything. All the, all the actual work is just being done in the ASIC and the tables are static. There's no data structures. There's no routing. There's no very, only the most basic of, of IP routing. Why do I need these, you know, uh, hyper expensive, super complicated, millions of features that'll be unused? There's, there's a real vision there that that's not the, where the future is. And, and you're right. And, uh, you know, the trend of applications going to the cloud just accelerates, you know, um, that type of evolution yeah. in the enterprise. Well, if you are, if, well, the, I think the interesting thing is when you get into hybrid cloud and SD WAN, and you start provisioning your overlays there, you have to have overlays in the data center. And then increasingly, if you just, if you're not provisioning the physical network in the public cloud, then you actually want to stop provisioning your physical network in your private cloud as well, and in your yeah. WAN too. And yeah. I think there's like these market forces that push out this old way of looking at things over time. The more public right. cloud distorts. The discussion and you know people want to be in the public cloud because working with physical hardware is actually quite difficult and expensive and operationally intense i think right. people's minds will be changed over time right now having said that you know there are a small number of enterprises out there you know some of them who have built networks that resemble you know a service providers global one mm. um now whether they need it in the future you know how will it evolve probably a open question, but some of those <laughs> kinds of enterprises could, you know, mm. they might find this attractive. That's a very good point. All right. Well, we've reached the end of the time. Unfortunately, we've got a hard stop, John, at the end of the hour. Um, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and where they can find you? And I think you've got a book that you've uh, written, which might be worth looking at. Yeah. So um, I work for at and uh, My responsibility is to um, design, architect, and build networks for at and And mm-hmm. uh, this is the packet and optical layers, you know, layer one, two, three, yes. As you know, we we call it. Um, so, <laughs> um, so um, I've done this pretty much most of my career with AT and T. And like mm-hmm. I said, when I started, you know, we we we, we built the whole thing, and the ASICs. It's that rule eleven from RFC nineteen twenty five. Everything old <laughs> will become new again, even if it didn't work the first time around. <laughs> That's right. Back, yeah. back to the future. And, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so the, the book you offered to, you know, I, I only wrote a chapter of it. Um, I yep. you know, included that in the link. So uh, that was about AT&T was one of the early um, service provider virtualization. Um, you know, we had something called a domain two program. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so Which has been quite successful. So one of the things about this, this project is that domain 2.0 has been quite successful. It has had an impact on the industry. And that I think is a key is why I actually think Dinos has has a chance of getting the attention. I, I completely agree. In fact, you know, if we hadn't done domain two, I don't know whether we'll be talking about this topic right now because this is really what opened our eyes and uh, it's worked well for us. Hmm. Well, I've just done a bit of a search on O'Reilly Safari, and uh, your book is there, so I'm going to add that to my reading queue. Uh, and if people want to get more links about where the white paper is, more about uh, some blogs on this, so AT&T has a very good innovation blog site, which I follow, which is how I found out about this. And you can also follow John on Twitter as John Medamana, 
I'm not going to try and spell that because there's an awful lot of letters in there and it won't make any sense. But again, if you head on over to packetpushes.net and hit up the show notes, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. Follow us on Twitter as at packetpushes. You can find us on LinkedIn. Leave comments. We talk, we respond to you. If you've got questions, if you've got ideas for shows or feedback you want to give us, that would be lovely. We love that. And you can like us on the Facebook if anybody actually is still using it these days. And finally, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. It would be really helpful if you could take the time to go onto Apple Podcasts and give us a lovely five-star rating because that actually helps us uh, get uh, popped up the store so that more people can find us. That would be a great way to help the packer pushes out. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>